open God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. Our focus will be on verses 7 through 11. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our lives will be shaped profoundly by the truth that the end of all things is at hand. I pray that we, we won't live as those who are tied to this world that is perishing, but as those who have a living hope, as those who know they have an imperishable inheritance. And so because of this, may we think clearly and may we love one another anticipating that day whenever all things are made new because that newness has already happened here and now in your church. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. When the men of this world sense the end, they panic, they run, they flee to the hills. This world is shy, no chicken littles telling us the end is near. Be it in the realm of weather, politics, terrorism, environment, health threats, agriculture, we're sure to find some prophet warning us that the end is near. Ours is a world that's full of godless fear, people fearing the end of everything except the end, except a proper fear for the end, the God who will bring it. More gloomy yet is that the church seems all too eager to have her same brand of apocalyptic mania. This should not be so. 
Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. This isn't so. Though perhaps it's losing steam, the best example of this kind of mania has to be the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye. The 13 volumes published from 1995 to 2007 have sold over 80 million copies and resulted in four films. But for all this, is the church more clear-minded or is she confused? For all this, whenever the end is declared, whenever it's heralded and preached, are we more anxious or less so? For all this, do we love one another in a way that distinctly marks us as belonging to the age to come? For all this, do we open our homes to one another and serve one another? We're not thinking rightly. We're not thinking biblically about the end either. Our end time frenzy is just as godless. And it's not legitimized by our use of more obscure apocalyptic language. Our end time insanity isn't okay because we use words like antichrist. If your thinking about the end causes you to panic, if your thinking about the end doesn't cause clarity of mind regarding this world and charity of heart regarding the church, you're doing it wrong. If your thinking about the end doesn't result in clarity of mind concerning this world and charity of heart concerning the church, you're doing it wrong. The end of all things is at hand. What does this mean? Some take it to mean that Peter and Paul were mistaken. They constantly talk about the end as though it's right around the corner. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still waiting. Such an attitude is immature. It's childish. It's... Like whenever you tell a young child that their birthday is three months, a few weeks, or even a few hours away, that seems like forever. Well, to be a saint is to have grown up into the future, to have grown up into the age to come. We should have a more mature understanding of time as a result. Our soul watches need to be calibrated according to heaven's clock, to the age to come that's already here in Christ. Whenever the Bible speaks this way, we shouldn't judge its concept of time by this world's, but vice versa. As you read through the Gospels, you see that the kingdom of God is something that's at hand, it's near, it's here. And yet, it's spoken of as something future. And this is because in Jesus, the resurrection, the age to come, the, he's the, it's already here. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the first fruits of the new creation. And so are we in Him. Jesus inaugurates the last days. This is why Peter could preach that Joel's prophecy was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. He says, This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, 
It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And Peter is saying that's happening right now at Pentecost, last days. This is why Paul could write. Now these things happened to them, to Israel, as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. And Hebrews tells us long ago, at, and, and long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now link that to what Peter said earlier in chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, about our rejoicing in the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We rejoice in it. It's yet to be revealed in the last time. And, and then he says this, though we are presently grieved for a little while by various trials. The last time we're rejoicing in that salvation, though right now we're grieved for a little while. And then he says in chapter 5 and verse 10, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Our pilgrimage, our hard, alien walk through this life, our suffering sojourn is so short. Ponder having resided in the new earth for an age or two. And then look back at that point and consider your pilgrimage to that place. And even if it's millennia between this day and that, you will have thought it as nothing. How arrogant for us to judge the time scale of the cosmos based upon our little lifespan. It must be a long time because me. The end has been inaugurated. It is here, it is coming, and by the time scale that really counts, the one that we should be in tune with, it will not be long. Even if millennia lie ahead, it will not be long. And why does Peter say this? And I ask that in two ways. What prompted his question? And what purpose does he have? What prompted this, not the question, what prompted the statement? And then what purpose does he have in making the statement? Well, as far as the purpose, know this. Eschatology, that's the study of the end. Eschatology is ethical. Eschatology throughout the scripture is always ethical. The end is always put forward for the people of God to live in a certain way because of it. It's not meant to just be up in your head. It's meant to impact the way you live. And so the following verses uh, tease out the ethical implications. Peter is The purpose that Peter has in bringing this to our minds is because of how it, how it shapes how we live. But what has is, what is prompted the question? Uh, not the, what has prompted the statement? Why is it here at all? Why has Peter said the end of all things is at hand? Well, let me ask the previous question again in a different way. What does the end mean? It means the realization of our living hope, chapter 1 and verse 3. It means the receiving of our imperishable inheritance, 1 and verse 4. 
It means the full revelation of our salvation, 1 and verse 9. It means praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, 1 7. It means the shaming of those who have reviled the saints' good behavior, 3.16. It means that the Gentiles, unbelievers, will give account while the saints are raised to everlasting life, 4, 5, and 6. The judgment that is spoken of in verses 5 and 6, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living dead, whereas for the, the dead saints, though, though they're judged in the flesh the way people are, they will live in the Spirit the way God does. That's the end. That happens at the end. This is the end that he's been speaking of all along. The end of all things is not to cause panic, but confidence for the saints. The end of all things shouldn't lead to confusion of mind, but clarity of mind. In the original language, it's really clear that everything that follows in this passage is connected to that statement. The end of all things is at near. And so we have all these ethical implications that follow. And we'll divide them up into four exhortations, which can be categorized really into two kinds of commands. You have this first command, which regards the mind. And then you have these three commands that follow which all regard how we relate to one another. So first, the mind. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. That forms a pair that communicates a single idea. Self-controlled, think of this in terms of the mind. It's elsewhere translated, be alert, sound judgment, be clear-minded, keep sane. This is a mind that is steered rather than driven. It's self-steered rather than other-driven. The mind is not to be a sailboat that just sits with the wind carrying it wherever it wants to or the currents taking it wherever it wants to. The mind is meant to be a motorboat that's intentionally driven somewhere. Sober-minded means exactly what it says. It's a perfect translation, not drunk-minded. So you might think that the point here is to avoid the last day's silliness that we've been talking about. Uh, don't, don't go crazy. The end of all things is near. Don't go crazy. Well, it's, it, it speaks to that, but that's not where Peter's going. As he's unfolded the end, the end is something longed for, expected, anticipated. What does he mean? What, what does being clear-minded and, 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 uh, and sober-minded, what does that relate to? Well, Peter has just told us about a, a way of thinking that we're to have because Christ suffered. And, and then he, he unfolds a kind of contrast between who they were in the past and how they are there to now live. And that's what Peter's done repeatedly throughout this. He, he's spoken of us being called out of darkness and into light in chapter 2. And that changes to be reflected in our thinking as well. Earlier in the letter, Paul exhorted us, Therefore, preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This is ethical, you see. This sober-mindedness, this clear-headedness is ethical. It means that there's this new way of life because of this new way of thinking that's not part of this former ignorance. That former ignorance, Paul is, uh, Peter has just talked about, 
as involving uh, uh, drunkenness, orgies, sensuality. Christian thinking is eschatological. It means it thinks about the end. It concerns about the end. Sober-mindedness realizes this. There's a judgment. There's a time whenever I'm going to stand before God. Uh, Sober-mindedness means this. I have a living hope. And this former ignorance ignores all of this. This former ignorance is tied to this world that is perishing. This former ignorance is drunk thought that behaves as though this world is going to last forever. This former ignorance is thought that thinks that, that, that Christ is not real. It says there is no God in the heavens. Clear-mindedness is behaving as though the new heaven and new earth are more real than this one that I'm walking on. They are imperishable. This one will go up in flames to purify it and create the new. Now, we're to be clear-minded, we're told, for the sake of our prayers. If your mind is drunk and driven, you're going to pray sinful prayers. If you're not thinking eschatologically, if you're not thinking the end of all things is near, if you're not thinking uh, this this is a lie, this is a god in my hand, this is not a god in my hand. If you're not thinking that all all this all this is is it will end, all this will end. If you're not thinking that way. Your prayers don't rise 20 feet off the ground in more ways than one. It concerns 20 feet down. It con- that's where it's limited to, and they don't get any higher than that. Your, your prayer life will concern life under the sun, and it won't get any higher than that. Your, your prayers will be limited to a chronology that's really, really small, and it won't get outside in that. You prayed. That's what happened doesn't get outside of that anymore, save the judgment that you might face in, regard, in, in relation to it. Be clear-minded for the sake of your prayers. This is simply another way of saying, your will be done. Keep loving whether next we get to these commands that relate to one another. And the first one is, keep loving one another continually, basically. And again, it helps to see the contrast. Edmund Clowney comments, Peter presents the positive side of the contrast in lifestyle. Not drunken debauchery and license, but sober clear-headedness, marks the Christian. Love, not lust, fills the heart. The Christian home is open for hospitality, not orgies. Ministry replaces exploitation. The dissolute life of the pagan fails to recognize his accountability to the Lord in the day of judgment, a day that is fast approaching. This is exactly what the Christian does recognize. The end of all things is near. So love, hospitality, service instead of sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatries, verse 3. Now, the word that you have is earnestly, as in other translations or, or at other times in the ESV rendered continually or constantly. And I think that better jives with the sense of the sentence. Keep on keeping on in love. Keep loving one another continually. Why? Because it covers a multitude of sins. What's assumed here is you need to keep loving one another because you're sinners. This side of heaven, we are all sinners, Every one of us. This side of heaven, we need a love that keeps keeping on because we're a mess. You need a love that keeps keeping on because it ain't going to happen otherwise. While the church should be a holy place, let us not fool ourselves. This side of heaven, 
We aren't there yet. You're going to need a love that covers a multitude of sins. Yes, but doesn't love uncover as well? James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, that bringing a brother back obviously involves some kind of confrontation, some kind of approaching your brother. That's no doubt the the very kind of confrontation spoken of in Matthew 18. Where Jesus instructs us, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So love uncovers as well as covers. When, when do we do which? When do we know when to cover and when to uncover? When does love uncover? Love uncovers when it's loving to uncover. When does love cover? Love covers when it's loving to cover. All clear? Here are some general principles. One. Never pass over your own sins. Cover up another. Don't ever cover up your own. How much, how much, how much confrontation would be instantly done? There wouldn't be any further need for it if we just followed that steps. Be willing to cover someone else's sins and never your own. Confess them. Make them known. Repent. Matthew 5 says, if you're offering up a gift and you remember that your brother has something against you, not that you have something against your brother, you remember he's got something, he's got a cause, he's got a, he's got a complaint that's legit against you, drop it and go and be reconciled to your brother. Number two, realize that you are blind to many of your own sins and give your brother the charity of, the, of, of doubt that he's likely blind to his sin against you. Instead of thinking that they had evil intentions, bad purposes, believe the best about them. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 tells us, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Third, uncover whenever your concern is genuinely for your brother and not yourself. Whenever your concern is for them and not for you to get yours. Galatians 6.1 warns us, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, they need, it need, if they're, they're caught, this is the language of being bound, ensnared. If they're serious sin, there needs to be confrontation. But here's the warning. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Sin, that sin needs to be uncovered. But deal with the plank in your own eye first. Oh, he's got, a, he's got something in his and it needs to be dealt with. Just make sure you're not going to him with one in your own eye first. Make sure your own sins are covered by the blood of Christ first. Deal with them in faith and repentance. Number four, uncover whenever there's serious continual, 
unrepentant sin. Serious, continual, unrepentant sin. And do so according to Matthew 18. Five, whenever you ha- when a brother sinned against you and you've been deeply wounded, it hurt. Take some time to calm down and find solace and refuge in God. And whenever you're at peace in God, then you go to your brother and you go to him for this reason. Brother, I want to let you know that whenever you said, whenever you did this, it hurt. But I want you to know this. I'm not doing this because I want to get leverage on you. I'm not telling you because I want you to feel bad. I'm telling you this simply because I know you love me. I believe that about you. And you would want to know. You, not this isn't about me. I know you would want to know how that hurt me. Go to it in that spirit of concern for your brother, not, not getting yours. If we're going to do, oh, number, yeah, that was, if we're going to do life together in the way that this text commands us, then we're going to need a great deal of love to cover a multitude of sins. There will be, if we start doing life together like this, there will be a great deal of sin and there will be a great deal of love to cover it. Ironically, the more faithful we are to carry out the one another's of Scripture, the more sinful we realize how we all are, selves included. Sin can be hid from a distance. But whenever you get up close, as this text calls for us to do, sin will be seen and sin will be sanctified. Love will cover and love will uncover. As we grow corporately, we'll not only see more of Christ in one another, we'll see more of where Christ has not yet been and yet will be the means for Christ to be seen there as well. Now, a great deal of this is to happen in our homes as we practice hospitality, verse 9. The word for hospitality meant, means primarily the care of strangers, of, of someone who's traveling, not an acquaintance, not someone nearby, travelers. That's the way it's used in Hebrews 13 too. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. And this is still a need for today. Whenever we still had an extra room in the house, uh, I would offer that to guests of the church that we will put them up in a hotel if they're comfortable with that, but if they'd like to stay with us, they can. And, and sadly, many refuse, but Rod Connor, who came with To Every Tribe, um, Rod took us up on that offer, and it became really clear why he did so. As you talked to Rod, you got the, the church that he had pastored for, for decades. You really began to see that they were big on hospitality. He had enjoyed it so much. He knew the blessings of it. And he didn't want to rob himself of them. And he didn't want to rob others of, of whenever you do hospitality, whenever you do it, and it's done properly and it's done in the Lord, everyone benefits. He didn't want to rob us of it as well. And it was a big blessing. One of my favorite examples of this is of Francis and Edith Schaefer and opening their home to the hundreds who were struggling and seeking refuge. Bethany recently enjoyed Rebecca Van Dudward's book, Reformation Women. And one woman highlighted therein is Katharina Zell, uh, wife of the reformer Matthew Zell. 
And whenever Protestants were driven from Kinzingen, just for one example, she took in 80 refugees. And then she cared for about 50 to 60 of those for four weeks, caring for them, feeding them. Whenever Martin Bucer fled Weissenberg, he found refuge in her home, as did Calvin whenever he fled France. This was a continual ministry she had. Whenever Luther and Zwingli debated and reformers fled into the city to, to watch the spectacle, uh, a lot of them stayed at her home. Now, while this act is, is kind of the word itself has first association in just the word, the sheer word, has first association with strangers and travelers. And while there's still a place for that, we need to do that. The emphasis here is on hospitality towards those who aren't strangers. Show hospitality to one another. Open your homes, open your lives to one another. It's much easier to show hospitality to the occasional stranger rather than the neighbor across the street. And thus, you're told to do this without grumbling. Do this without grumbling. Hospitality costs. Hospitality costs. Tim Chester warns, hospitality will lead to collateral damage. Food will be spilled on your carpet. You'll be left with clearing up. Your pantry may be decimated, but remember that God is welcoming you into His home through the blood of His own Son. The hospitality of God embodied in the table fellowship of Jesus is a celebration and sign of His grace and generosity, and we're to imitate that generosity. We who gather at the Lord's table to abundantly feast on Christ should know both the cost and the rewards of hospitality. And whatever the cost, the rewards are far greater. Next, Peter tells us to use our gifts to serve one another. Realize this, whatever gifts you have, they're gifts. They're, they're not something you have that you can, you've got a lock on and so you can use them however you wish. They're gifts that were given to you. You're a steward. You've been entrusted with something that's precious. And this is why you've been given gifts, to serve one another. Ephesians 4 unfolds something of the depth from which these gifts are mined and the heights to which they should rise. Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might feel all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The gifts that you have are meant to function primarily in the local family of the church so that everyone is built up together into conformity to Christ. Do not sit on such gifts. Do not bury such talents, having made no return on them. But what are my gifts, you ask? What are my gifts? Well, Peter unfolds two broad categories under which they all fall, speaking and serving. You can find a more elaborate list in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, but those aren't exhaustive in my opinion. How do you find out? Well, how do you find out if you have a knack for volleyball? First, you could take stock of your assets and abilities. Are you tall? Can I jump? Am I coordinated when doing so? Second, find out if you play volleyball. Play volleyball. You don't discover your gifts by some kind of contemplation or self-assessment or test. Those could be helpful and so I don't put a lot of stock in them. Just do it. Find out. Third, develop your gift. Few great volleyball players or any kind of sport or any kind of discipline. You're not just a natural instantly the first time you do it. Skills, gifts are developed. We have this misunderstood conception. Oh, it's a spiritual gift. That means immediately whenever I do it, I'm an expert at it. That, that's what that must mean. No. Gifts can be developed and gifts can atrophy. Fourth, this might be the most important one as far as you finding out specifically where. Do you see a need? Then very likely, in the very gift, you see, seeing the need itself is a gift. And if you can see it, it's very likely because you have some kind of perception and understanding. And if you can see the need, very likely you have gifting to do something about that need. See the need? Do something. How are we to serve one another? Well, if it's a speaking gift, is one speaking the oracles of God? If it's a serving gift, is one serving in the strength that God supplies? In other words, serve as a faithful steward. What this means is serve what you've received. Serve what you've received. The speaking here, speaking as the oracles of God, has primary reference to the apostles and prophets and, and evangelists and carries on now primarily in those who fulfill the office or the, 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 the task of preaching and teaching, shepherds. What preachers have received is the bread from heaven. This cannot be improved on. God is, is not looking for original chefs. God has prepared the feast, and our commission is to serve it. The task of an apostle was to serve what he had been, what he had received. And preachers are called to simply be waiters. And the, the dish that the apostles have set before us, the Word of God, the Word of Christ, to take that and set it before the sheep. God isn't looking for creative columnists to rewrite original content and sell papers. He calls the weak 
and the foolish to herald his good news, of which he is the author. John Stott warns, How dare we preach if God has not spoken? By ourselves we have nothing to say. To address a congregation without any assurance that we are bearers of a divine message would be the height of arrogance and folly. Whoever speaks, speaks as the oracles of God. But there is a secondary application of this speaking to one another that falls to the congregation at large. And you're all gifted to various extents in this. Do this. Colossians 3.16 describes something of it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he goes on to describe what, what does this mean? It doesn't mean it stops with you as if you're some spiritual guru and you live on some higher plane. You don't become some kind of isolated pillar saint that everyone looks up and oohs and awls at. What does that mean? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is how. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdoms. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Consider this, whenever we sing songs, yes, we're singing our praises unto our King. But I can't tell you how often it's nourished my soul to hear you rejoice in the truths of our God together. It's an admonishing of my soul when in doubt, when struggling, when fighting, that I gather with the people of God and we affirm He's holy, He's good. Oh, what love He has for us in Christ. Oh, sing with gusto for this reason. First, because of your God and who He is, praise Him. But also, to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. For those who serve, serve in God's strength. Serve out of weakness and dependence. Don't serve because, uh, well, I don't know if I should take on this ministry. I don't know if that's my gift because... I don't feel like an expert or a professional in that. No, serve in the strength that God supplies. Serve out of weakness and dependence. Serve the way that the apostles did whenever they were handing out the bread to the 5,000. There's no way I can do this. I must rely upon God and God alone. Service is not to flow from confidence that we can meet the need, but that Christ can. Why are we to serve this way? So that God is glorified through Christ. These gifts come to us through the risen Christ who's ascended and gives gifts to men. And they come to us from the, the hand of Christ so that as they are through Him, all glory might be to the Father who gave us Christ. This happens, this magnifying of God happens whenever we act not like springs, as if this is flowing out of us, but like pipes that have been graciously and mercifully tapped into the spring of Christ. Flow like a pipe, that, a living pipe, that flows because it's drinking in. Flow because you're drinking in. Serve in a way that makes it obvious that you're receiving so that God is glorified. John Piper asks and answers, What is God looking for in the world? Assistance? No. The gospel is not a help wanted ad. It is a help available ad. Nor is the call to Christian service a help wanted ad. God is not looking for people to work for Him, but people who let Him work mightily in and through them. 
The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. 2 Chronicles 16.9 God is not a scout looking for the first draft choice to help his team win. He's an unstoppable fullback ready to take the ball and run touchdowns for anyone who trusts Him to win the game. So let us beware practical and pragmatic approaches to ministry and service that would seem a ready-made formula for success. Let us beware of man's wisdom to ensure numbers and prestige. Before speaking, beware of speaking, excuse me, beware of speaking in such a way that you eclipse God's supreme word, Jesus Christ. And beware of serving in any way that distracts from the service of Christ. May we so serve and speak so that all who benefit therefrom exclaim with Peter, to Him, to God, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end is near. And this should result neither in lunacy or laziness, but love and sobriety of mind. And yet, there is a reference that is involved in this. The end is near. There is a kind of fear and reverence that this should cultivate. In 117, Peter admonishes us, saying, If you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In 417, he writes, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? But you see, there's clearly a difference of judgment that's involved here. It begins with the household of God. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? There's a distinction in judgment here. This is a judgment of reward but nonetheless one that's to be, to be met with reverence and fear. The end is near. Such reverence is the sobriety of mind that Proverbs speaks of as wisdom. It means living knowing that life under the sun is vanity, as the preacher says. What's the answer? Get over the sun. Get on the other side of it. Live in reference not to this world that's perishing as the fool, but live wisely in regards to the God eternal who will make all things new in Christ. This is the kind of fear and reverence that a child has for a beloved father who's entrusted them with a responsibility that they're, they're just... In awe. It's not, a, it's not this burden. It's a responsibility that, that, that is in awe. Of, he's given me this gift and this privilege and this honor. And it longs for the father to come home so that he might hear the words, well done, not because he's confident of his work, but because he's confident of his father's work in him. He's confident of the Father's instruction and he's confident of the Father's love that even though he stumbled and he fell and he, he's, he's, it's not the best, but he knows his Father's love and grace and mercy. This is the fear that longs to hear these words, not because we long 
to hear them as they would center on ourselves, but simply at the awe of the promise of the Father, that He would say such words of us, that we would have known we've pleased Him, to, to fellowship in His love, this kind of communion with Him. This word for end that you have here, that's the end. This word that you have as the end can also be translated as goal, perfection, completion, purpose. The end, the goal of all things, is the glory of God. Do you see, what, do you see how Peter's done this? The end of all things is near, and then he ends with God being glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You've got to see that He's the end is at the beginning and the end of this passage. It's the content. This is the same language of the Westminster Shorter Catechism whenever it asks the first question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What Peter is calling for in this passage is for us to get a head start on the end because it's already been inaugurated in Jesus Christ. Live for the end right now because it's already come. The church is the outpost of the new creation in this world that is fading. It's breaking into the present. The future is breaking into the present in our salvation and sanctification. As we build one another up in Christ, we are a picture of the age to come. Start living for that which is eternal instead of that which is perishing because the end is near. The end of all things is near, but the end is only the beginning. C.S. Lewis wrote one of the best endings because he was influenced by the ending of all endings. His Narnia tales close with these words. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for, the, for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how it's become a reality to us by the Spirit of God in His salvation, we're already in the title page. But beloved, it is just the title page. Let us so live knowing that the end of all things is near and that so many grand and glorious chapters lie ahead of us. Oh, how sanctifying this is for us. What we don't need to seek here and now and what we already have in Christ and are promised eternally. Let that shape how we think 
so that we're sober-minded and not drunk on the spirit of this world. And may it move us to love one another as the anticipation and a foretaste of eternity. Let's pray. Father, I pray we are rejoicing and thirsting for the end of all things so that our prayer is, as we consider the end is not, oh no, but come, Lord Jesus, come. And yet, Father, we want your will to be done. And so we, we live these short days and we live them with the mind of Christ armed for suffering. And may we really live them, not bound and by, by a bondage to this world that is perishing. May we live them, giving and sacrificing, sure and confident of that day, drawing on the strength that you supply, speaking your words and your truth. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.